If this is your first time listening, I strongly suggest beginning with episode one, A Murder Most Foul. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Let's say you're an investigator whose job it is to figure out what exactly happened in the Taylor home on the morning of October 6th, 1974. Rudimentary forensics let the first responders know that when they arrived that morning, it was indeed a fresh crime scene. The blood was still pooling. Christine's body was still warm. Then there were the witness statements about the disturbance that was heard coming from within the house, again, early that morning. Screaming, violence, barking dog, breaking glass. Silence. If you knew nothing about Michael Taylor or his family, where do you begin? The extreme level of violence would suggest a maniacal crime of passion. That supposition would be buttressed by Officer Walker's report of the mental and physical condition of the prime suspect in the murder. The only suspect in the murder the naked and blood-soaked Michael Taylor, found disoriented in the streets of Osset. Reading that report from Officer Walker, a few things would jump out at you. Michael's own words, They primed me for it. I loved that woman, but it was within her. I destroyed the evil that was within her. And of course, Michael's declaration that he was, quote, covered in the blood of Satan. Your first instinctive reaction would probably be that the person was criminally insane and most likely suffering from a mental break that would land him in Broadmoor, the largest and most well-known psychiatric facility in the UK. But, as all good investigators do, you file away that first instinct and try to assemble the best possible case based on the evidence. What was going on in this man's life in recent weeks? How was his marriage? Had he recently been in any financial trouble? Was he healthy? Is there anything that could point to what seems like a sudden explosion of violence, but had actually been simmering below the surface? After all, we're dealing with a man who dismembered a beloved family pet, tore his wife's face off, then beat her to death all with his bare hands. This wasn't going to be a normal investigation. But in order to understand what really happened in this case, we're going to need to take a look at the economic and social atmosphere of the United Kingdom in 1974. How art and religion collide through the mystical world of speaking in tongues, and how that would somehow contribute to a truly bizarre and grotesque act of satanic violence. And the investigators' main source of intelligence, as they began to put the pieces of this terrible crime together, was Michael Taylor himself. From Cavalry Audio, this is The Devil Within. Episode 2, The Winter of Our Discontent.
In his wonderful and terrifying book, The Sussex Devils, British author Mark Heal expertly navigates the satanic panic of the 1980s. However, he dedicates a few chapters to the Michael Taylor story in an effort to probe the beginnings of that cultural phenomenon that saw brutal, ritualistic slayings that were supposedly tied directly to devil worship. He begins one of those chapters with an incredibly simple and accurate opening statement, painting a picture that would serve as the backdrop and in some ways the catalyst for the tragedy that was to follow. Mr. Heal wrote, It would be hard to think of a bleaker year in recent English history than 1974. To drive this point home, we can look at some obvious examples from that same year in the United States. America's defeat in Vietnam and the war deficits incurred under the Johnson administration, coupled with the oil crisis of 1973, put a major strain on the U.S. economy. Experts agree that this time in the history of the Western world marks the official end of the post-World War II expansion. It also marked the emergence of industrialized nations who wanted their share of the pie, especially the steel industry, where competition was suddenly fierce, where there used to be none. A stock market crash made the recession painfully obvious to the last few holdouts, while the term stagflation was being used to describe why this particular recession was different. It meant high unemployment and high inflation were creating a simultaneous one-two punch that left much of the country reeling. Then there was the political upheaval. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. And after Nixon's resignation, things, well, didn't get better. Economically, we can leapfrog over the Ford and Carter administrations until halfway through Reagan's first term, until the effects of that particular recession started to abate. In the UK, it was worse. Some would say much worse. Why? Well, first off, there was the feeling of revolution wherever you went. The issues relating to Northern Ireland and the bombings that were increasing in frequency and body count led to a nationwide sense of anxiety and fear. A real fear that you could die in a violent explosion at any minute. Now, add the fear of a slow and painful death by starvation. Because, it could be argued, that fear was more imminent for many Britons. Especially in the North, where a once thriving industrial society had slipped into decline and eventual collapse. There was a nationwide threat from the coal industry to either raise wages to compete with the record 17% inflation rate, or there would be a crippling strike. As an answer, the conservative government instituted the now-famous three-day week. It was a concerted effort by the government to preserve electrical power. With only a few exceptions, all commercial industry could only use electrical power for three consecutive days per week with no overtime. Added to the list of fears, 
blackouts. Here's author Mark Heal. It was a time of crisis, and there was definitely a sense uh, that things were falling apart. There were two elections that year in the UK. There was one in February and one in October, and both of them produced very indecisive results between left and right. And it was a time when um, it was just before sort of Thatcher came in as leader of the Conservative Party, and politics seemed to be moving very much to an extreme. And the reason was because there had been a huge oil price shock from the Arab-Israeli war the year before. So prices were spiralling, inflation was an extraordinary uh, high level. Uh, Trade unions were very militant, and there there was a lot of strikes, a lot of industrial action. So I I remember as a kid, you know, the power going off at very, very regular intervals, you know, many a night was spent with no electricity and candles. To compound the sense of, you know, crisis, industrial political crisis, I think there was also the war in Northern Ireland, and I I have to call it that because that's what it was, was spilling over onto the mainland. And for the first time, you know, the IRA was was planting bombs on on, in in the mainland and that, you know, enhanced the air of of crisis and violence and um, a real sense that things were falling to pieces. I think that was true of the world in general. I mean, there was definitely the mid-70s were a time of crisis, but I think it was particularly bad in Britain and particularly bad in the north of Britain where the industrial powerhouse of the country had been. And uh, this was the first time when it was really obvious that that was all coming to an end and that the old industries were were going. So many Britons were living in a state of near-perpetual fear of violent explosive death Slow death, joblessness, revolution, family welfare, future prospects, and, of course, the dark. What's a person to do? Seriously, what's a 31-year-old father of five with chronic back pain and a disappearing career as an operator of agricultural equipment, what's he supposed to do when everything in his life suddenly goes south? No money, no prospects a growing, hungry family? The answers to that question is the focus of this podcast. Because that person is Michael Taylor, an innocent young father who, through no fault of his own, found himself in what some might describe as a desperate situation. He was vulnerable. He was weak. The kind of weak that attracts the worst of humanity, that preys on just that chink in the armor of the human condition. Oh, you're lost? I know the way. Follow me. Enter organized religion. Here's more from Mark Heal. I would actually up the ante there. I I am not sure. Of course, yes, he had worries. He had a big family. He... Couldn't work for some of the time. So he was he was worried. But everything that we know about uh, Michael Taylor implies that he was a very calm guy. Mild-mannered was the, um, was the expression which was used. He certainly wasn't an excitable person. He had no criminal convictions. He, he didn't, as far as we know, didn't get involved in pub fights. He wasn't a violent or excitable person. There was absolutely no indication that this person was 
potentially a brutal murderer. None whatsoever. Yes, I'm sure all those things were a worry, but there's nothing indicating, there was nothing to warn us about Taylor's behaviour before the events of October 1974. Nothing. The madness and carnage that would unfold in the Taylor home to the Taylor family was the result of an innocent overture by a concerned neighbor. Barbara Wardman lived near the Taylors and considered them friends. She was aware of what Michael and his family were going through, what so many Britons were going through, and she wanted to help she offered an invitation to the Gauber Christian Fellowship Group. Barbara herself had been a member for quite some time and found the weekly meetings to be spiritually uplifting and socially fulfilling in a time of uncertainty and rampant selfishness. It's important here to state that neither Michael or Christine Taylor had, to this point in their lives, claimed any religious affiliation. They did not attend any church. There's no record of their children being baptized, no confirmations, no record of financial donations to any religious organizations. Their friends and family were sure to make the point that the Taylors weren't anti-religion in any substantive way. They just weren't believers. The most succinct way to characterize Michael Taylor's views would be to say that he didn't have a favorable opinion of the ceremonial and ritualistic aspects of religious worship. Ceremony and ritual. Two powerful driving forces inherent in the machinations of Christianity that would eventually catch up to Michael in a stunning, deadly fashion. There was another event, and it's not an overstatement to classify it as an event that occurred in early 1974. It was the release of a movie in the United Kingdom that, perhaps more than any other up to that point, scared audiences to their very core. The movie was called The Exorcist. More after the break. The Exorcist was based on the best-selling novel by William Peter Blatty, and directed by William Friedkin, who was coming off a Best Picture, Best Director triumph for his film, The French Connection. The movie centers on the alleged demonic possession of a young girl and the man tasked with exercising that demon. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! The movie was a bona fide box office phenomenon. And, contrary to what you might think, the Catholic Church loved it. They just thought it was a little too realistic. It's come out in the press recently that the church pushback wasn't as bad as the media and Warner Brothers originally sought it out to be. That's Jeff Marshall, film critic and podcaster from Los Angeles. Warner Brothers thought 
if the Catholic Church gave them enough pushback and enough grief over it, that that would help drive people to the box office and increase revenue. Come to find out later on that really the Catholic Church didn't see the film as anything other than a wonderful example of the power of faith. However, it did publicly condemn uh, the film for being shown too broadly to too many people. Uh, they did feel that it was not for everybody to see and should be taken in small doses. Almost every single usher and movie theater manager had smelling salts on them at all times because they would get around 7 to 12 people fainting per showing of the film. Several people walked out every single showing, many convulsed, many vomited. This film had a visceral reaction from countless people that went to go see it. And some of those people who were having those experiences were seeing it for the second and the third time. And they still had yet to completely see the film beginning to end in one sitting. The film's incredible success in America carried over to the UK with lines around the block filled with people who just couldn't wait to get scared to the point that they might pass out. So what you had was true word of mouth. You had people spreading the word and their experience with this film. You had news channels that were going to movie theaters and interviewing moviegoers and people watching this on television going, I have to be a part of that experience. I want to know what it's like to experience this movie. Uh, there were countless people that were Catholic that had read the book even that came forward and said, I know what happens. I read the book. It made me uncomfortable, but I have to see visually what this writer was really thinking. And I think that one of the greatest moves that Warner Brothers made was hiring Blatty to write their script um, was because it was going to be the best adaptation of the book possible. And that would also give moviegoers the peace of mind knowing that the person that wrote the book also wrote the film. So they might be getting his visual interpretation of what they were actually reading a couple of years before. And remember, this was the 1970s. Studios were making movies like Taxi Driver and Chinatown and A Clockwork Orange. Dark movies that made social and political statements. This was also in the times, obviously, before the internet and streaming content. But it was also before home movie rentals were widespread. Basically, everyone went to the movies. And the impact that a well-crafted, seemingly realistic movie can have on audiences can be tremendous. I feel like one of the biggest impacts movie can have is it can kind of move the needle or introduce us to fears or concerns we didn't know we had prior to that film coming out. While movies can be a fantasy like Star Wars, we're not worried about, you know, intergalactic warfare or anything like that. We're not worried about Darth Vader coming down to planet Earth and killing us with lightsabers. There are movies like Jaws where it is very relatable. We all have, mostly everybody in this world has been in the ocean. We know that sharks exist. But until that film came around, we didn't ever really think that we could be attacked in shallow waters by sharks. But the film did such a beautiful job of making it real, a real possibility that moviegoers see that and it resonates and we think, oh my God, it could happen to me. 
And so you had millions of people who were scared to go in the ocean, maybe even some uh, dark, deep lakes, um, for fear of an attack by under, underwater life. The exorcist probably, again, we, we don't have statistics to really back it up. The church is kind of tight-lipped about that kind of stuff. But we have examples in the news of people having life-changing experiences when going to the movies, and The Exorcist was one of those films. It introduced the idea that maybe when we come across somebody uh, on the streets uh, begging for change or um, somebody, a close one, a loved one, is having mental issues of some kind that maybe it's not what we think it is. Maybe it was not drug abuse. Maybe it's not because they have some childhood trauma. Maybe it is because there is potential that they've been overtaken or possessed by some sort of demon or the devil. And, you know, to put it plainly, that is a thought and a fear that most people probably didn't have prior to the exorcist being released. Back to Michael and Christine Taylor, two non-believers who decided to take a shot at a local church group on the advice of a friendly neighbor. Curiosity got them in the door, but what kept them there? What attracted these non-believers to what would later be categorized, rightly or wrongly, as a cult? In a word, charisma. The church group that their neighbor, Barbara Wardman, belonged to was affiliated with the nearby St. Thomas's Anglican Church. By pure coincidence, you'll remember from season one that Tommy Sullivan and his family also belonged to a church that glorified the name of the Apostle St. Thomas. This church, however, this St. Thomas Anglican Church, just outside of Osset in Yorkshire County, was on the tail end of a major ideological and doctrinal shift. Only a few years earlier, the congregation of St. Thomas's had welcomed a new vicar, the Reverend Peter Vincent. For those unaware, after the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, the Anglican Communion ranks as the third largest Christian communion in the world. Birthed by the Church of England and founded in London in 1867, Anglicanism means different things to different adherents. For some, it's non-papal Catholicism. Others enjoy it as a form of Protestantism, and for many, it's a combination of the two. But it's that lack of specificity that allows believers of all types to find solace and sanctuary under the vast, enveloping umbrella of Anglicanism. And here is where we meet the good Reverend Peter Vincent, the local vicar of the St. Thomas Anglican Church. The title vicar is an ancient one, bestowed upon parish priests in the Church of England. The vicar basically calls the shots where any church business was concerned. Now, what Michael Taylor or Christine Taylor or even Barbara Wardman didn't realize was that when Reverend Vincent arrived at St. Thomas's, he had been riding a powerful and steady wind of change, a wind that had its origins a world away in Los Angeles. More of The Devil Within after the break. It was a hot midsummer afternoon when I pulled up in front of St. Mark's Episcopal Church on Sherman Way in the Van Nuys neighborhood of Los Angeles. 
Originally a mission founded in 1925, the church moved to its current location in the mid-1950s. According to their website, the parish hall and surrounding buildings on the large property are shared between the Episcopalian congregation, a middle school, a Korean congregation, a Ugandan congregation, a Filipino congregation, a nursing school, and, of course, a host of 12-step groups. It's also a popular local spot for weddings. So why is this melting pot of a sunny Southern California church important to the story of a hideous murder in Northern England? Well, to answer that, we need to go back a little further, again in Southern California, not too far away from Van Nuys, actually, just a quick drive on the freeway to a small town called Azusa. It was in this small desert town of Azusa in 1906. Actually, everything in Southern California was a desert in 1906. But it was here at the Apostolic Faith Mission at 312 Azusa Street that many believe Pentecostalism was born. Pentecost is a Christian holiday that commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. It is celebrated on the 50th day, or 7th Sunday, following Easter Sunday. It describes a direct personal experience of God, of the existence of God through baptism with the Holy Spirit. Those lucky enough to experience such commiseration are easy to spot through the sudden ability to speak in unlearned languages, also known as glossolalia, or speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a strange phenomenon. The expression that they would have used is letting the Holy Spirit talk through them. And that's what speaking in tongues is. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to use you as a mouthpiece. And out comes a stream of unformed syllables flowing flowing spontaneously from you and and it's it's a very strange and powerful and quite moving thing to actually see when somebody uh, just breaks out like that again you know you can watch it on youtube and it, it seems a bit comical but actually there in the room it's very powerful and um i think what it is is um it shows an intense relaxation it's almost like a, a, a reflex of just allowing a stream of pleasant-sounding gibberish to come out of your mouth. And it shows a, t- a sense of... It's almost like a child whooping with, sort of, with joy, and, and, you know, as, as you did as a kid. And imagine when, you, when we were all kids, we all had sort of nonsense phrases and things that we, we'd love to say. And I, I noticed kids do that all the time. It seems anyone, under the right circumstances, can develop the ability to speak in tongues. From small town congregations to preachers overseeing megachurches and even spiritual advisors to office holders in the highest corridors of power. It's a powerful statement 
of someone's voice and spirit being commanded by a higher power. And sometimes it's a safety net. For example, if you can't think of anything to say. Let it be burned by the fire of God right now in the name of Jesus. Let every... So, yeah, speaking in tongues is very much a thing. However, what it means exactly to speak in tongues is up for debate. And the Bible isn't very helpful. Because in the two books where the gift of tongues is chronicled, Acts and 1 Corinthians, the depictions of speaking in tongues in those books are in direct contradiction. In Acts, when the day of Pentecost is described, the newly baptized apostles are suddenly able to, quote, speak in the tongues of the gathered pilgrims, gathered from far-off lands where languages are spoken that the apostles would never have even heard, let alone learned how to speak. While in 1 Corinthians, the gift of tongues is described as a private prayer language or excited utterances, basically a non-discernible language that allows the person blessed with the gift to speak directly with God. As you would imagine, it's this First Corinthians style of speaking in tongues that has persisted until present day. Why? Well, with the internet being what it is, if a preacher suddenly began speaking in a, quote, unknown language from a far-off land, it wouldn't take long before a native speaker recognized the mother tongue and translated for us. So, a, quote, private prayer language or excited utterance is a safer bet, more mysterious, completely lacking specificity, and more open to passionate individual interpretation. So we'll go with excited utterances for the purposes of this podcast. And so it was. In Azusa, California in 1906, on a crisp spring morning, where the preacher William J. Seymour sparked what would come to be known as the Azusa Street Revival, a three-year-long celebration of religious ecstasy that would spread across the nation and would ultimately usher in a new order of Christianity, the Charismatics. The services on Azusa Street lacked any discernible structure, and there wasn't much in the way of leadership. But there also wasn't any segregation. The doors were open to all who cared to worship, and the sight of huge crowds of black people and white people worshiping together came to define early Pentecostalism. That and the divine triumph of communion with the Holy Spirit punctuated by speaking, preaching, and singing in tongues. Fast forward more than half a century, and Los Angeles is a major metropolitan area with millions of residents still wrapped in the conservative social blanket of the 1950s. And it's here that we arrive at St. Mark's Church on a fairly busy street in Southern California's San Fernando Valley. The priest was a man named Dennis J. Bennett. And on Sunday, April 3rd, 1960, he recounted his personal Pentecostal experience of baptism with the Holy Spirit to his gathered flock. And he didn't do it just the one time. He told his story the two following Sundays 
the second one of which was Easter. Now, it would be fair to say that his behavior wasn't looked upon favorably by his elders, for he was soon forced to resign. The idea that a run-of-the-mill priest at a Los Angeles church would claim to have basically a paranormal religious experience, which included speaking in tongues, was just a bridge too far, even for the Episcopalians. But the horse was out of the barn, as it were, and the movement took off. Charismatic Christianity, as it was soon called, quickly spread from parish to parish until charismatic orders were present in Lutheran and Presbyterian churches by 1962, Catholic churches by 1967, and the Methodists by 1970. And by 1974, the Church of England, and more specifically, the Anglican Communion, had a strong representation of practicing charismatics. Counted among them was Reverend Peter Vincent, the newly installed vicar of St. Thomas's Anglican Church in Yorkshire County. And this is where we end up in 1974, with Michael Taylor, an out-of-work heavy machinery operator with a bad back and no prospects. Add to that a wife, five kids, and a dog at home that needed to be taken care of. With the backdrop of all of this, a country on the decline economically, inflation soaring, and increasing terrorist attacks committed by people who were supposed to be their countrymen, Michael Taylor was ready for a change. Now remember, again, Mr. Taylor had no prior religious affiliation and had never expressed any desire to change that fact about himself. But he must have been at his wit's end. Or, at least willing to entertain some change in his life. We've all heard it said that there are no atheists in foxholes. For Michael Taylor, his metaphorical battle found him alone in a foxhole, and he indeed reached out for a lifeline from God. And the form that God would take in answer to his yearnings? Well, to say it was shocking would be an understatement. Suffice it to say that after a single meeting of the St. Thomas's affiliated Gauber Christian Fellowship Group, under the auspices of Reverend Peter Vincent, but not run by him, that duty fell to another. We'll meet the preacher soon enough. But after a single informal meeting in the cramped living room of a fellow parishioner, Michael and Christine Taylor were so moved by the ecstasy and joy that consumed their entire being that they converted to Christianity and were saved. Unfortunately, their troubles were just beginning. On the next episode of The Devil Within, we'll meet the charismatic leader of the Taylor's new church group and understand how easy it was for them to be taken in. Also, we'll explore the simple nagging question that has persisted over the decades since the murder of Christine Taylor. Were the Taylors seduced into the web of a religious cult? That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within Season 2, The Demons of Yorkshire, is a Cavalry Audio production. 
produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed all episodes. Music by Soundstripe and Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. I'm Brandon Morgan, your writer and narrator.